afternoon, you're on the panel, RNZ National, Wallace Chapman with you, I have Peter Fa'afiu and Heather Roy. We are on iHeart, on Spotify, on Apple, nice to have you with us. Japan is planning to release 1.3 million tonnes of contaminated nuclear wastewater into the Pacific Ocean. International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, has formally approved this plan and a meeting with Pacific leaders in Rarotonga this week. Many Pacific leaders, they're unhappy with the plan. Modelling shows the currents would bring the contaminated water to the Pacific. Around 3,600 days after it is released, the wastewater would cover almost the entire Pacific Ocean, according to a paper published in the National Science Review. So to explain this, we have Dr. Carly Birch from the University of Auckland. Dr. Birch, uh, kia ora. Kia ora. You've been looking into this issue for some years now. Just explain, what's your background here? So I've been studying the aftermath of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster, particularly focusing on food safety governance for over a decade now since the onset of the disaster. So on the face, yeah, okay. So on the face of it, it's uh, it, it looks, you know, pretty substantial, pretty concerning. Uh, over one million tons of treated wastewater into the Pacific. What do you make of it? Yeah. So I guess the way I think about it is, it seems to me like a continuation of what I was already noticing in my research, where these dominant standards are used to determine legal accountability for pollution. Um, And so these standards are often used to say everything is safe, don't worry about it, Uh, but they're really narrow in their focus and their ability to say say something that answers the questions of local communities who are dealing with the aftermath of these pollution disasters. So do you think the standards that are being used to measure the safety of the water is up to scratch? I do not. It's Well, I don't think that the standards are able to answer the questions that are being posed by Pacific leaders. Um, and I think this is seen in how the Pacific Islands Forum independent panel of experts have been clearly saying that there is not enough data to actually answer questions about the possible health and environmental impacts that might be faced by people in the Pacific. And this is a direct result of the standards because the dominant standards are only asking questions about um, chemistry and external radiation doses. So they they use some data about the chemistry and they run it into models and they make assumptions about the possible external radiation dose and that is how they make uh, declarations on whether or not it will be safe or not. But that's very different from you know, going in and actually collecting data using the most up-to-date scientific information um, and methods that we have to understand the actual biological and ecological consequences. Okay, Let's, we've got a panel with us, uh, Carly. Let's bring them in. Heather Roy. Thanks very much, Wallace. Thank you, Carly, for that. Um, it's a really tough problem, isn't it? Because if you look at what what the effect of doing nothing is, it could be devastating. You know, is it in the world's interest to leave millions of litres of radioactive water in drums, just waiting for someone to steal some to build a dirty bomb, for example? You know, something has to happen with this water. It can't just stay where it is. 
Yes, I completely agree with you. And I I follow a lot about what the, the scientists on the independent panel that the Pacific Islands Forum has gathered. They have proposed a plan to actually use the water to create concrete because one of the biggest concerning mm-hmm. radionuclides is tritium and it has a a beta emission. So that means it might not be externally, it might not be very strong. So in those dominant standards, it might not stand out very much as causing harm. But actually, if you ingest beta or alpha uh, particles, they can cause a lot of trouble internally. And so one thing that has been proposed is to put that water into concrete so that it is enclosed and it's not entering any living systems or bodies um, and that that could take a five five years and the concrete could be used on site to patch holes that are allowing you know wastewater to go directly into the ocean and other things that need to be happening. That's an interesting mm. solution there, isn't it, uh, is. Peter? Yeah, and Carly, you have the science, um, but of course you've got the politics and you sort of touched on it you know, with the Pacific Island Forum and of course the 1985 Treaty of Waratonga around nuclear waste dumping. Uh, um, I guess from, you know, not from a science perspective, but I guess your opinion on the transparency of, of the Japanese um, um, government um, in regards to other options? Yes, I think that there have been other options such as the concrete plan that have been um, recommended, and all of those basically go unheard of. I I was reading uh, one of the articles with IAEA Chief Grossi this morning, and he didn't even mention the concrete plan, even though it's clear that TEPCO has heard about it, and I'm pretty sure the IAEA has heard about it. So there are other on-land options, um, and I think it's really important to recognize that the Treaty of Rarotonga was directly trying to address not only the pollution from dumping nuclear waste into the Pacific, but also the radioactive pollution that um, resulted from the aftermath of all of the detonations by the United States, by France and the Pacific. And so it's important to not, um, you know, we have this tendency to think of nuclear energy and nuclear weapons as separate, but actually these standards were created as a means, you know, to allow for ongoing nuclear weapons detonations. So the, the reason that they are so narrow, that they only focus on chemistry and external dose, is because it means that those people detonating weapons do not have to be legally, um, you know, th- they have no legal consequence for ongoing pollution. Right. Yeah, someone says, if I was a whale swimming in the Pacific Ocean, I'd definitely have a strong opinion. Um <laughs> Michael says the issue is one of accumulation in marine food chains. Once it's out there, it can't be hoovered up again. An interesting uh, aspect to this, Dr. Birch, is scientific opinion. Um, There seems to be a variance in what scientists think about this issue. Can you explain that for us? Yes, I guess I would take a step back and say that science is always driven by research questions, and those come from particular people or places or funders. And so when it comes to those independent scientists that are working for the Pacific or working with the Pacific Islands Forum Secretariat, um, they're trying to answer questions that are of importance to people in the Pacific. And so they're asking questions about the possible health and environmental consequences, and they're trying to get that information from Tokyo Electric Power Company. And they keep saying that the data that Tokyo Electric Power Company are giving them are incomplete, inadequate, and inconsistent. So they're unable to 
you know, answer the questions of the Pacific Island Forum Secretariat. And if we take a step back and we look, okay, so TEPCO scientists are creating that data. Uh, what, is their, what are the research questions that they're trying to answer? And they're just trying to make sure that this plan aligns with dominant species mm. standards, which is what the IAEA has said that it does. And so that is the data that we have, and it's not able to actually answer the questions that matter to frontline communities. Very good to have you on the program. I really appreciate your time, Dr. Birch. Kia ora. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, Dr. Birch from the University of Auckland. A very significant issue at play for the Pacific Island, and indeed for us, 1.3 million tonnes of treated nuclear wastewater um, to be put into the ocean. Yeah, in addition to the nuclear submarines and ships that are rolling around in the Pacific at the moment from various uh, um, big powers in regards to the geopolitical um, um, situation in the Pacific. So, yeah. 17 past four, the panel, RNZ National. Nice to have your company. We have Heather Roy and Peter you if you've just joined us. How does it feel driving 30 k's an hour through town? That's what we discussed yesterday. Nice and safe or just a bit of a drag? A plan to lower the speed limit in much of the Whakatane district towns to 30 k's an hour. Fanatical is what Mayor Victor Luca said. He was on the panel yesterday. With legislation introduced in 2022, Waka Kotai has, has laid down a framework for councils throughout the country for setting speed limits in their districts. What I wanted to know is, what was the evidence, if any, behind a 30k per hour limit? With us is Dr Vanessa Beanland, Director of the Otago Transport Research Network, in the Department of Psychology at Otago University. Dr. Beanland, welcome. Thank you for having me. It is a pleasure. So needless to say, a fair bit of response on this uh, issue, as you can imagine. And so this framework states that speeds must be reduced to 30 k's an hour for areas around schools and school travel routes and 30 to 40 for local urban streets. That's what's happening, not just in Whakatane. Tell us a bit more about what is the evidence, if any. Sure. Um, so this idea of reducing travel speeds to 30 or 30 to 40 kilometres an hour, that's based on research and work that's been done internationally. And essentially what it's shown is through different ways of looking at it, if a vehicle collides with a pedestrian or another unprotected road user like a cyclist or a scooter user, um, and they're travelling about 30 kilometres an hour, then the person will probably survive that. Um, and then as soon as you start increasing beyond 30 k's, um, you start increasing the risk of fatality for the person who's um, struck. So that's why it's sort of for pedestrian safety is one of the main rationales. Mm. Um, and... They started it um, sort of, you know, 15, 16 years ago in Sweden, but other countries have also adopted a 30k speed limit throughout Europe, Asia, and North America in town areas. Oh, okay. So it's it's an international issue. Yes, very much so. Okay. All right, Heather Roy. Yeah, I have difficulty, I suppose, with just blanket rules for very different situations. So absolutely agree with around schools and where um, the danger is higher, but out in other suburbs where there mightn't be those dangers, 
and the a slow speed just sort of holds everybody up, frustrates people, can it can cause other knock on effects, I guess. And so I think that we we can't just be very black and white about imposing a very low speed in all situations. Yeah, what about Vanessa? Well, that's interesting because people have a sort of um, emotional and instinctive reaction to the idea of reducing speed limits. And they think when we reduce speed limits from 50 to 30, they think, gosh, that's almost halving it. It's going to take me twice as long to get places. But the research doesn't actually support that. It, um, It usually will increase travel time slightly, but not by that much because we don't spend all of our time driving 50 kilometres an hour in a 50k zone, we spend a lot of time stopped at intersections and traffic lights. So when you reduce the speed limit from 50 down to 30 or 40, what you see is that there's not that much of an impact on travel time or average speeds. It reduces the maximum speed and the maximum speed is what kills people. Um, And it can also have other positive effects too. So in some cases, it can improve traffic flow, reduce fuel consumption and emissions, and it can reduce wear and tear on both vehicles and the road. So there are a lot of potential benefits from slowing traffic down. What do you reckon, Peter? Um, Is there, from the the research overseas, is there aspects of their package of solutions, because I I presume the reduction in speed is is part of a package of solutions, is there some, you know, in other countries where they're doing it really well um, in, in addition to the re- reduction in speed um, that New Zealand isn't doing well? well? That's, that's an awesome point um, because, yeah, I, I know people talk about, well, we should do something else instead of reducing speeds, um, but it is very much a package deal. It's, you know, transport is a complex system, so we can't change one thing. We need to change a lot of things. Um, Speed has a really big impact on crash risk and fatality risk and injury risk, um, but there are also other potential changes. Um, they're just more complex and more expensive to introduce, um, and that's things like actually changing the roads, changing the way that they're designed and the way that they look mm. to road users and how they're used and building different roads. A few mm. people got in touch with us yesterday saying, look, all, all well and fine, but um, it's just so hard to comply with it. Uh, someone says here, right now, 30 k's around town, hell, if I could maintain that, I'd be a happy man. Um, <laughs> so, There's an know, enforcement issue too, isn't there? Well, so, that, that's right. So uh, you, can, you can say all you want, 30 k's. People aren't going to do 30 k's, Vanessa. They're going to do 50 k's. Um, I mean, that's that's sort of a valid point. And, um, you know, part of putting a speed limit that low is that people will exceed it at least a little bit. Uh, so if you put the speed limit at 50, they'll drive 60, and then you're definitely going to kill people. So it's, it's mm. sort of shifting it lower. But there's also a cultural change. You know, we didn't used to think people would wear seatbelts or not drive home from the pub. And we've made good ground at changing attitudes mm. and behaviour on drink driving and seatbelt wearing and a lot of other issues. And so I think it's sort of, there needs to be a similar cultural shift around 
driving slow any place that there could be pedestrians or vulnerable road users around. All right, yeah, I've got to say, a real mix of responses here in Christchurch. We are 30 round town, love it because it flows a lot better and not as slow as I thought. I thought I'd hate it says Cole. Before you go, I mean, you're from the Department of Psychology. Can you understand why people get a bit worked up about the car speed issue? I mean, I do a show called The Panel. I tell you what, people get worked up about this issue, Dr. Beanland. Yes, they absolutely do. And I I think that it's it's just a sort of um, instinctive human thing. We we think we should be able to go as fast as we want to, um, but humans aren't designed to travel that fast and crash into things. Like our bodies can't withstand it. Nice to have you on the program, Dr. Vanessa Beanland, there, uh, Director of Otago Transport Research Network. Lovely to have you on. All right, you're on the panel on RNZ National, as always, uh, loving your feedback this afternoon. And by the way, and I do say this because I'm cognizant that many can't actually listen to the panel uh, live. So if you want to go back and listen to, say, yesterday's show, you can go on to iHeart, you can go on to Spotify. Uh, and you go on to Apple. Already a big response to this, and this because this caught my attention on Threads, which is this new, what is it, Peter? It's a, a new Twitter type of thing, I guess. I don't know. You don't know? Heather, are you on Threads yet, <laughs> no, Heather? No, no, no. All right. Not. Okay, so <laughs> if someone offered you $5,000 to watch the same movie for 24 hours straight, could you do it, and what would you watch? Text me, 2101 what movie would it be for you? So already is quite a few. Uh, Wallace, I could watch the Blues Brothers for 24 hours. All that beautiful blues music. Uh, wonderful, this Murray. Very good. Um, 24 hours of Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> oh, dear. Sorry, why am I? That's... No. no. Um, Josie says Pride and Prejudice. So... The co-host of the Worst Idea of All Time podcast and Method Film Reviewer, Tim Bad, is an absolute expert on multiple viewings. Tim's with us. Kia ora, Tim. Kia ora, Wallace. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Now, for the listeners who don't know the podcast, can you explain the concept? Sure. Uh, the Worst Idea of All Time is a podcast that has been going on for too long by anyone's uh, measurement, featuring myself and Guy Montgomery, watching bad movies too many times. So we kicked off by watching Grown Ups 2, which is, I think, the lowest-ranked Adam Sandler movie ever. Uh, we watched that every week for a year and kept reviewing it. You're kidding um, me. And we've given the same treatment to both Sex and the City movies. Um, we did one called We Are Your Friends. Yeah, it's... Pretty painful. <laughs> On a scale of one to ten, ten being torturous, how painful is it? It depends on the movie, but I've got to say, at the top of the mountain is Sex in the City 2. That is by far the worst multiple viewing movie I think imaginable, certainly that I've seen. And I would, I would put that at a nine. I'm sure there's something beyond it, but I, I haven't seen it. All right, a big response yeah, yeah. to this, Tim. We'll go around the stay there. I said. Lord of the Rings. Um, Oof. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not yeah. a fantasy guy. I know yeah. I'm probably going to get evicted from New Zealand, but yeah. I, go, I could not handle that. Could not handle that. Even worse than Sex and 30 City 2. All right, Heather Roy. 
Well, it would have to be something long so that you didn't have to watch it too many times. I think I could do it. And the, this isn't my favourite movie. And for me, it's much more violent than anything I would normally watch. But Pulp Fiction was a film that I thought about for days after watching it because it has those four interwoven themes running through it that make no sense at all when you're watching it. And so my thinking is if I just watched it for 24 hours, I might get the whole picture. (laughs) Absolutely endorse that. I'm such Mm. a fan of that film. You're right. Okay, so you could watch it for 24 hours. I think so. Five grand. Say there, Tim, Peter. Uh, Two. Forrest Gump and Godfather Part Two. Forrest Gump mm. because it's a very happy movie and I want to be happy for 24 hours and and Godfather Part 2 because sometimes I wish I was the Godfather in, in, my, interaction, <laughs> in my interactions with some individuals throughout my life um, What do you think about these what do you think about those Tim what do you think about this one Phil says what I would watch for 24 hours is Avatar it is awesome and it goes for over 3 hours so you only have to watch it 7 times Tim yeah, well, that's the thing, isn't it? And it's probably the same with Lord of the Rings. Like, you could probably do the whole franchise once, and it's probably 24 hours, isn't it? Um, I, I think, think that's cheating, though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it may well be. I've got a movie that I'd offer up, which yeah. I've only seen a couple of times, but I love it, but I find it so confusing. It's this little movie called Primer, which was made on no money, and it's this kind of horror time travel oh, movie. Wow. And I have tried to wrap my brain around what's happening in the plot, but I think it would take me just multiple viewings time after time over a 24-hour period to really get it. It is a wonderful film. Far out. Uh, Someone says, my 24-hour movie would be The Conformist by Bernardo Bertolucci. Goodness. Discover something new every time I watch it. Actually, you know what? No, I'm going to change my mind. Uh, Tim, uh, scrub Lord of the Rings. Have you have have you seen? I'm getting a bit highbrow now. Have you seen Solaris by Tarkovsky? I've not seen Solaris. No. It is freaky. It's chilling. It's slow moving, and it's set on a spaceship. And it's so- got Bruce Willis in it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's Tarkovsky. Tim, it doesn't have Bruce Willis. <laughs> Oh, there's one with George Clooney. Exactly, that's the one. That came out in 02. You got it, you got it, that's the remake. Um, Very good. Uh, Someone says, Grown Ups 2 isn't as good as Grown Ups 1. Well, yeah, but neither of them are as good as a real movie, so it's a bit moot, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Good on you, Tim. Nice to have you on the program. Very good. That's Tim there, who is the co-host of uh, The Worst Idea of All Time podcast. It, it, it has to be a good film, doesn't it, Peter? Yeah, it's interesting yeah. because um, with streaming, because um, I'm on Netflix and, um, and Neon, they're starting to bring back old movies. Mm. And so I've noticed, like, you know, one's landed and I go, oh, yeah, a new one's landed. And I'm like, oh, okay. That's a, that's an old one. Uh, so. I've got to say, uh, Heather, I'm with you on Pulp Fiction. I, yeah. I I got a lot out of that film, and it's the sort of I, I totally get what you're saying. It's the sort of film that you can go back to again and get something new out of it. Yeah, I was thinking about it for days after I watched it, and then sort of parts of that jigsaw puzzle just came together for me. Yeah, mm. uh, someone says, "Oh, this is a great one coming through now." Koyanis uh, <laughs> Quatsi. I could watch that for 24 hours, and yes, Solaris. It Drifts in and out like a dream. You're on the panel, uh, NZ National. Uh, we have Heather Roy and Peter F- for you this afternoon.